This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I'm preaching this morning about a short man, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Take your Bible and turn, please, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Let's stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. By the way, Brother Asher, this is... Uh, there are more visitors here this morning than any church that we have preached in since COVID. And you folks are to be commended for bringing out your friends this week. All right, Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. It says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you very much. You may be seated. I want you to take a trip in your mind with me some 2,000 years ago and see if we can picture the scene as it might have been the day when Jesus came to town. Now, the Bible does not give us the exact setting, but this is the way I see it in my mind. Perhaps they had put up posters months before announcing the coming of Christ to Jericho. Uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, everybody had heard about Jesus. John 12 and verse 19, the Pharisees said, the world has gone after him. They had heard that this man walked on the water. He'd opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. He stopped funeral processions. And I believe that everybody came to see Jesus primarily do a miracle. And in my mind, I can see a sobbing mother as she breaks her way through the crowd. And she says, Lord Jesus, will you raise my son from the dead? And then I can see a blind man hobbling to Jesus. And he said, Lord Jesus, will you open my blind eyes? And then a man coming to Christ on a set of crutches. And he says, Lord Jesus, will you heal my broken limbs? But you know, I don't believe that Jesus heard the noise and the din of the crowd. 
But I believe his mind and his eyes were fastened upon one man, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, I, I, I appreciate Zacchaeus not simply because he was short. Now, I'm glad God included that in the story. But the main reason I like Zacchaeus, it tells me that Jesus is interested in the individual. You know, religion majors on the masses, but not Christ. He majors on the individual. And if you had been the only person ever born on planet earth, Jesus would have left the royalties of heaven, walked a sin-cursed earth, and gone to an old rugged cross for you. He's a God of the individual. So, as Jesus gets a glimpse of Zacchaeus, I can see him as he starts over the sycamore tree. Now, let me remind you of something, folks. Publicans were hated people, but Zacchaeus was not simply a publican. He was the chief among the publicans. That tells me he's doubly hated over anybody in town. And as Jesus starts over the sycamore tree, I believe the Pharisees begin to buzz and somebody says, oh boy, Jesus is going to punch Zacchaeus in the nose. Somebody else might have said, we'll hold him while you hit him. And I believe they wanted to see Jesus molest Zacchaeus. But I don't believe he had any such thing in mind. Here was a beautiful love story. And one who was going to die on the cross for Zacchaeus' sins and your sins and mine. Now, here's what I would like for us to do in our imagination. I'd like for us to go over this sycamore tree, climb up that sycamore tree, shimmy out on the end of the limb right beside of Zacchaeus in our mind. Now, I'm aware that when some of you get out there, it's going to be a little hazardous. Some of you ought to be on a diet. But anyway, I'm speaking this morning on the subject reading Zacchaeus' mind. And I believe that from verse 5, there are four thoughts that Zacchaeus must have had. Notice, please, verse 5. It says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. What do you think his first thought was? I think it was this. He sees me. My, what a thought. If you realize that God sees everything you do, it'll revolutionize your life. Why are crimes committed at night? Why does a man wait until night to assault a woman or rob a filling station? He wants to do it when nobody is watching him. Years ago, I was in Youngstown, Ohio, and a lady said, Brother Comfort, I was in a department store this week and I saw a little boy about 10 or 11 years old go to the counter. He looked east and west to see if anyone was watching. And when he thought that no one was watching, he grabbed a handful of merchandise, shoved it in his coat, and he made a beeline. Why? Because he thought nobody was watching him. Hey, the Negro spiritual says, he sees all you do. He knows all you say. My Lord's a-writing all the time. 
He sees the secret things. Job 31 and verse four, did not he see my ways and count all my steps? Job 34 verse 21, for his eyes are upon the ways of man and he seeth all his goings. Proverbs 15 and verse three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Jeremiah 23, 24, can any hide in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill the heavens and the earth, saith the Lord. Hebrews 4, 13, neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight. For all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees me. Before I started Ambassador Baptist College, several years before, I would preach to 100,000 or more teenagers. And you know, I found this. The average Christian teenager is living in gross deceit about which his parents have no knowledge. Hey, there may be people in this building tonight, this morning, you know where to go to get anything you want to go to get. He sees me. I was preaching in Minneapolis and one of my preacher friends came to me. He said, Brother Comfort, I just preached across town in a Christian school in St. Paul. And he said, a lady came to the pastor and she said, Pastor, something is wrong with my boy who's in the Christian school. She said, I don't know what it was. Do you have any insight? He said, no, I don't. But he said, let me give you a suggestion. Go up to your son's bedroom, look under his mattress, and tell me what you find. The next day, she came to the pastor with a page full of the titles of dirty, filthy, rotten, pornographic magazines. Tears were coming down her face. She said, preacher, I had no idea. She said, every perversion imaginable is in the magazines my son has been reading. Why, pastor, he even has books on homosexuality and how to do it. He sees me. I was preaching in Kansas City, Missouri. Pastor, the last night of the meeting came to me. He said, a lady came to me and asked prayer for her daughter who is in the service tonight. She said at 2.30 in the morning on Wednesday, she was awakened out of a dead sleep. Never happened before. She went downstairs to her daughter's bedroom, opened the door, the window was open. Her boyfriend had crawled through the window 2.30 in the morning, they were involved in immorality. Now, she may have hidden it from mama. She didn't hide it from God. You know what God says about that, Luke 12, 2 and 3? Neither is there anything covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever is spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which is proclaimed in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed from the housetop. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, when the unsaved stands before God, their secret sins will be made public. 
All right, go back to Luke 19 in verse five for the second thought he must have had. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw me, he sees me, and said unto him, Zacchaeus. What do you think his second thought was? I think it was this. He knows me. My, what a thought. You know, God knows you so well that the very hairs on your head are numbered. Now, I look at Brother Mark here, and I realize God didn't have a hard time numbering the hairs on his head. <laughs> Some of your head's like heaven. There's no parting up there, you see. <laughs> he knows me. My favorite portion of Scripture, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 12. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down. You're not acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue. But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from my spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, sure the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about thee. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. He knows me. Hey, if I did not believe in the deity of Christ for any other reason, I would do so on this basis. Do you know that when Jesus Christ was on earth in a body, he was still all-knowing. We call that omniscient. For instance, in John chapter 2, Jesus begins his public ministry. At the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, he turned the water into wine. Now please, don't ever say that Jesus turned the water into alcoholic beverage. Don't ever say that. If he did... The scripture is broken. You say, what do you mean? Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23, 31 and 32. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. When it giveth its color in the cup. When it moveth itself aright. At last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Hosea 4.11, whoredom, wine, and new wine take away the heart. Habakkuk 2 and verse 11, woe unto him that giveth this neighbor drink that puttest thy bottle to him. Do you know the curse of God's not only on the person who drinks this stuff, the curse of God's on the grocery store owner who sells this stuff. The curse of God is on that 
stewardess on the airplane who serves the stuff. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Now, let's be logical. Would Jesus make those scathing announcements about alcoholic beverage and then turn the water into alcoholic beverage? Not on your life. Now, there is a rule of interpretation about the word wine in the New Testament. One Greek word, when it is used in a bad connotation, it means alcoholic or fermented beverages. When it is used in a good connotation, it simply means a fruit of the vine. So what Jesus did that day, he turned the water into the best grape juice of his day. Now, listen carefully. He went to Jerusalem, it's Passover time. By the way, that's another indication it could not have been fermented wine. Why? Because at Passover time, Jews took anything out of their house that was leavened. And uh, alcoholic beverage would have been leavened. So it would have been out of their house. Well, he goes to Jerusalem and in John 2 and verse 23, it says, and they, many of them believed on his name when they saw the miracles that Jesus did. Now listen carefully. John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and he needed not that any should testify of man because he knew what was in man. Now the word commit and believe are the same Greek words. The same Greek words. Here's in essence what he said. When they saw the miracles that Jesus did, many of them believed on him. But... Jesus didn't believe on them. Why? Because he knew the crowd was fickle. He knew that one week he would go into Jerusalem on the donkey and they would say, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That same crowd, one week later, would say, crucify him. We'll not have this man to run over us. He sees me. He knows me. Now go back to verse 5 for the third thought he must have had. It says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. He sees me. And said unto him, Zacchaeus, he knows me. Make haste and come down. What do you think his third thought was? I think it was this. He wants me. I love that. He wants you for salvation. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavily laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Isaiah 1 and verse 18. And come now let us reason together saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson they shall be as well. Listen, we would not have a person teaching for five minutes at Ambassador Baptist College who identifies as a Calvinist and believes that Jesus died for only the elect. Not on your life would we have somebody teaching on our faculty. First Timothy 2 and verse 4, who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
First Timothy 2 and verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, Jesus tasted death for every man. You know the gospel I preach, Mark, and go downtown in Norfolk and find a drunkard, find a drug addict, find a drug seller, and I can say Jesus had you in mind when he died on Calvary. You say, I've had an abortion. He wants you this morning. You say, well, I've been a pornographer. He wants you this morning. I, I have told our preacher boys for years, don't buy anything retail. You can always find it wholesale. Everything I buy, I buy on a bargain. I got these shoes on a bargain. I got this sport coat on a bargain. Everything I buy, I buy on a bargain. When I got my wife, <laughs> man, did she, did I get a bargain. Now she got the short end of it, but I got the bargain. I was sitting on the back row in 1953 of an area-wide meeting in Asheville, North Carolina. The evangelist said, there's a young man in here tonight whose God is popularity. His God is himself. You know what I said? Who told him I was here? <laughs> Somebody's told him all about me. He said, you come to Christ. I said, I can't go. If I go, my friends will see me go. He said, if you'll take that first step, you'll have no trouble with the second. The back row of the balcony, 3,000 people, I started down the aisle. And I know that counselor was glad to get rid of me. I almost drowned him with my tears. And he said, God has promised he'll remove your sins as far as the east is from the west and remember them against you no more. I said, I want that. And may I say, 67 years ago, I was born again. Ladies and gentlemen, he wants you for salvation. Take your Bible, keep your finger here, turn to Matthew chapter four, verses 18 through 20. Not only does he want you for salvation, he wants you for service. Matthew 4, 18 through 20. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting in the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. All right, look this way. I want you to know these fellows were not fishing to pass the time a day away. This was their occupation. But when they fell in love with Jesus, they left their nets, they forgot about their occupation and became fishers of men. Here's the connotation. If you're following Jesus, you're gonna be involved in soul winning. If you're not involved in soul winning, then you're not following Jesus Christ. 1975, we took our first mission field trip to Kenya, Africa. And I came back and was really stirred up about getting laborers to go to Kenya. 
And I preached in Albuquerque, New Mexico in January. God reached down that service and he saw Dr. Ralph Stewart, a PhD in science, already making a six-figure salary, 1976. And God reached down and he said, Ralph Stewart, I don't want you wasting your life in the chemical laboratory. I want you in my service. He left his nets. He went to Maranatha Baptist Bible College as a professor in biology, making $15,000 a year. He went from a six-figure salary to $15,000 a year. Last I heard, Ralph Stewart was pastoring a church in southern Illinois that he started. He was willing to leave his nets. How about you? I preached in 1980 in Marshalltown, Iowa. God looked down in that meeting and he saw Bob Matney, superintendent of the public school system, high paying, prestigious job. And God reached down and he said, Bob Matney, I want you in my service. He left his nets, went to Newington, Connecticut, headmaster of a Christian school, making half the salary he was making in Marshalltown, Iowa. I preached pastor in that chapel in that school where he was headmaster. 47 young people came down the aisle and surrendered for full-time Christian service. Bob Matney got up before his young people with tears in his eyes. He said, young people, five years ago in a Ron Comfort meeting, I did the same thing you're doing today. He said, but you know what? If I spent all of my life in the public school, I could never see 47 young people surrender for full-time Christian service. God is asking you this morning, are you willing to leave your nets? He wants you for service. I preached in 1961 after graduating from college in a little country church near Clarksburg, West Virginia. Little did I know the girl that played the piano would get saved in that meeting and she would turn out to be my wife. I had to marry her to do follow-up work. And uh, we've almost had 60 years of a wonderful follow-up course. But not only did Joyce get saved in that meeting, her cousins Eddie and Edna Bartlett got saved in that meeting. Eddie Bartlett was, when he was a baby, was dropped on his head and his brain was slightly damaged. And I'm saying he belonged in the institution, but I'm saying he spoke with a thick, stammering tongue, just not quite average mentally. Many years ago, after hearing me preach one night, Eddie Bartlett came to me and he said, Brother Ron, Brother Ron, he said, last week I went out and I found me an old drunk, and I led him to deed the Christ. He said, Brother Ron, since I've been saved, I've led 27 people to deed the Christ. I looked at Eddie Bartlett that night, and tears welled up in my eyes. And I said, Dear God, have mercy on my cold heart. If Eddie Bartlett could win 27 people to Christ, every Christian in this building could too, if you'd leave your nets. All right, in closing, go back to Luke 19 and verse 5. 
It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, he sees me, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, he knows me. Make haste and come down, he wants me, for today I must abide at thy house. What do you think his last thought was? I think it was this, he loves me. My, what a thought. He loves me. You know, for 15 years of my life, I never knew that anybody loved Ron Comfort. My grandmother told me that when I was six months old, she walked into our third story apartment in Brooklyn, New York, saw my mother take me in her arms, was about to drop me from a three-story window. My grandmother grabbed me out of my mother's arms, threw my mother on the bed, if my grandmother had delayed five minutes, I would have been a dead baby laying on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. I can remember at the age of four, walking the sidewalk, picking up cigarette butts off the street and smoking them. At the age of six, running around with a gang. You say, that's preposterous. A six-year-old running around with a gang? Hey, we lived in the Bedford-Stuyvesant area, the worst area of all of Brooklyn. And in that area, you were either in a gang or you were the object of a gang. And my brother, who was four years older than I, and I felt it would be better to be in the gang than to be the object of a gang. Every one of us in the gang had a pair of brass knuckles just waiting for a little boy or little girl to be walking the store by themselves so we could beat them to a bloody pulp. I can remember, ladies and gentlemen, seeing my mother leave. My dad was in the military station in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Every week he would send home $20 as an allotment for mother to buy groceries for four children. Instead of buying groceries, my mother would spend days on end in the saloons and taverns. Many were the days we never saw my mother. Many were the days my brother would go to the fruit stand, steal fruit off of the fruit stand so four little children could have something to eat. I can remember seeing my mother take a broom handle and beat my sister Eleanor across the bare back with a broom handle until the blood appeared on her spine. My sister, five years older than I, about 15 years ago, died of cancer in Hendersonville, North Carolina. But before she died, she said, Ronnie, up and down my spine as an adult woman are still scars from where I was beaten as an 11 and a 12-year-old girl. Many mornings I saw Eleanor run out the door, putting on her slip, putting on her dress to escape the beating of the broom handle. Some of the things that I saw as a little boy, I did not understand, but I shall never erase those scenes from my mind. I can remember coming home from the first grade, trying to get into our third story apartment. And there was an article of furniture pushed against the apartment door obviously to keep anybody from entering. So with my little body, I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and finally I pried the door open just enough to squeeze my little body through. I'm sorry I did. You know what I saw? 
I saw my mother and the landlord having immorality on the living room couch. And this was the way my mother paid her rent every month by having immorality with the landlord. Many were the nights my mother would go down on the streets of Brooklyn, take in men off the street that we had never seen in our lives and have immorality right in front of four little children. When I was seven years old, my mother and father received a divorce. My mother realized she could not live like she wanted to live and care for four children. This is what she did. She took three of us, put us on a bus like a package. She put a tag around my brother's neck and the tag read, these children are the property of William Comfort in Elmire, New York. See that he gets these children. At the time, we had a two-year-old sister, Connie, whom mother felt was too young to travel. Do you know, I had only seen Connie twice in 38 years. And after years of praying, I preached in Brooklyn in 1981, and God reconciled my sister and me together. And Connie made a profession of faith. I've thought about that, Pastor. What if my mother had said, Ronnie's only seven. I'll keep him back with Connie because he's too young to put on the bus. You know what? You would not have a preacher that I am standing behind this pulpit this morning. I'd have never been saved. I'd never heard the gospel. Their, uh, Ambassador Baptist College would never become a reality. We have over a thousand of our graduates around the world serving the Lord. That would have never happened if my mother had said, I'm going to keep Ronnie back with me. My mother committed herself to a mental institution. Are you listening? Because of alcohol. Hey, don't talk to me about should a Christian uh, socially drink. Don't you talk to me about that. I know what it did to my mother. She spent 35 to 40 years in mental institutions all over New York and Pennsylvania. She died in the Elmire, New York Psychiatric Center in 1991 because of alcohol. And I remember what my brother and sister looked like when we got on the bus that day. My brother had on a pair of trousers that were tied around him with a rope. My sister had on a dress that had more holes in it than it had material. My brother and sister were nothing but a stack of skin and bones. When we got to Elmire, New York, Dad didn't know we were coming. So when we got off the bus, we started looking around the bus depot to see if we could find Dad. The police saw our plight. Policeman came over and said to my brother, what are you kids doing? He said, well, our mother sent us from Brooklyn to Elmira, and we thought our dad would be here to meet us. So he took us around the bus depot, still no sign of Dad. He said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. He said, we're going to take you down to the police station and we're going to feed you a meal. I want to say those policemen treated us so kindly that night. We had a meal like we had not had in such a long time. And after the meal, the policeman said, now we're going to take you down to a children's shelter. 
You'll spend the night in the children's shelter and we guarantee you we'll find your dad. He'll claim you tomorrow. So the next day in the afternoon, dad came down, claimed his three children. On the way home, I never will forget what he said. He said, kids, do you remember the woman I brought to Brooklyn and I introduced her to you as your Aunt Roxy from the South? He said, no, she wasn't your Aunt Roxy from the South. She was my girlfriend and now she's my wife and she's going to be your mother the rest of your lives. Let me say the next eight years of my life were filled with nothing but fear. Oh, how I hated to see those weekends come. I knew my daddy would have his drunken buddies in and we would see fighting and immorality and hear cursing. Many Saturday nights, I never slept a wink all night long. Well, after we were in Elmira a while, dad came to his new wife and he said, Roxy, uh, I think New York ought to be in our past. He said, New York has not been good for the Comfort family. He said, I suggest that we move down to your roots in Asheville, North Carolina and begin life anew down there. And of course, my stepmother was thrilled to hear that. So we got on the bus in Elmira, got off the bus at Asheville, North Carolina, and with three children and a wife, my dad had one quarter in his pocket, one quarter. He said, Roxy, what are we going to do? We don't have a house. We don't have a job. And my Stepmother said, Bill, I've got an aunt, Aunt Roxy, that runs a boarding house on Patton Avenue. And I think Aunt Roxy will keep us until we can get established. Well, we went down to uh, Aunt Myrtle's boarding house, and right away there was a head-on collision. My dad was a thoroughbred Yankee. Aunt Myrtle was a thoroughbred Southerner. And they were at each other's throat all the time. There was a civil war going on in that boarding house. One night, my stepmom and my dad got drunk. They got in a fight and they were taken to jail. Aunt Myrtle called the police to come and get and take them to jail. The lady next door asked if she could keep us until mom and dad were released from jail. You know who that lady was? Her son was a Baptist preacher known all over the state of North Carolina for his preaching. I went by Ms. Tiller's bedroom that night and I saw Miss Tiller on her knees and I watched the tears come down her face and I heard her pray and cry, Oh God, save Bill and Roxy Comfort behind bars tonight. Oh God, save Billy and Elner and Ronnie Comfort. And that was the first person I'd ever met in my life who impressed me as caring anything about Ron Comfort. I was 13 years old. I woke up in closing. My Dad uh, and stepmom and I were the only ones in the home. Billy, my brother, had joined the military to get out of the house at 17. My sister was married at 16 to get out of the house. I was the only one left at home. And about 6 o'clock in the morning, I heard my stepmother tell my dad this, Bill, I hate Ronnie. I wish we could get him out of our house. Now, Dad knew that I heard that. 
And he came to me and said, don't pay any attention. Your stepmother is in menopause and she's in the change of life. She says things she doesn't mean. But I'll tell you what, folks, nothing could soothe my heart that morning. As I lay in bed, I began to weep and I said, oh God, I don't want to see a daybreak. I don't want to see a sunrise. I don't want to see anybody. Nobody loves me. My brother joined the military, was in Panama City, Florida. One Saturday, he and his buddy were on their way downtown to get drunk. Now, my brother had already been taken to house of prostitution by our dad. And so Billy had lived a wicked life. And so as they were on their way downtown to get drunk, there was an outdoor meeting going on. And my brother told his buddy, he said, let's sit down and listen to that preacher. And they did. And the preacher preached a simple gospel message. And when he got ready to close, he said, I'm going to close in prayer. And if God has spoken to your heart, you'd like to have your sins forgiven. You'd like to know you're on your way to heaven. Come down and talk to me after I close in prayer. He closed in prayer. Billy told his buddy, he said, I'm going to go down and talk to that preacher. And he came to the preacher and he said, preacher, you said I could know my sins were forgiven. He said, I've got a whole lot of them. He said, you said I could know that I was on my way to heaven. He said, I'd like to know that. Will you tell me how? And so Billy got down on his knees that day and was born again. He did not go downtown and get drunk. He went back to the barracks, wrote his little brother a letter to his mom and dad. And he said, mom and dad, Ronnie, I've been saved and I want you to have what I have. Billy was in Norfolk for a long time. He pastored Victory Baptist Church on Kempsville Avenue. And uh, Billy was all on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. He came home on furlough and nine out of 10 days he preached to his little brother. He said, Ronnie, you think nobody loves you? I've got good news. Jesus loves you and he wants to save you today. And because of that, his little brother got saved. You know, I don't believe there was a person in town that Zacchaeus could have pointed to and said, there goes a person that loves me. There goes a person that loves me. But now he met Jesus. And I can hear him as he sang, I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. And that day, Zacchaeus was saved. And ladies and gentlemen, you can be saved too. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.